Well, if you have your Bibles open still to Revelation chapters 2 and 3, that is going to be our focus now. I want to remind you that the book of Revelation is a letter. We think of it as a book of prophecy, and it certainly is. It identifies as a book of prophecy. However, the book is also in the form of a letter, a letter to a group of churches, seven in number, and each of those seven churches gets a personalized word from the Lord Jesus Christ at the beginning of the book, here in chapters 2 and 3. And so this morning, I want to introduce the letters of Christ to the churches, and we're going to be doing an overview of chapters 2 and 3. And then in the next several months, we'll be digging into the details of chapters 2 and 3, comparing and contrasting the strengths and weaknesses of these seven congregations in first century Asia Minor. So we'll be looking at the Lord to the churches. At the end of chapter 1, we saw the Lord of the church. Now let's hear the message of the Lord to the church. And we'll be looking at the seven churches and then the Lord's message to those seven churches. Now, to get you thinking about this amazing section of God's Word, I want to ask you a question. What would Christ say to us if he were bodily present in our church today? If he disguised himself and came in as a stranger into our congregation and observed our worship, observed our fellowship, spent the morning with us, and then he went and wrote a letter to us and said, Hey, I visited your church last week. Here's what I liked. Here's what I didn't like. Here's what you need to change. Here's what you need to keep doing. What would he say? What do you think our Lord would say about this congregation? That's an important question. Because as we'll see when we dig into Revelation chapters 2 and 3, that's exactly what he's doing. You may not see him, but he's here. He's watching. He's observing. He's critiquing. He is speaking. And those who are filled with God's Spirit are able to hear what Jesus Christ says to our church. This is not merely a hypothetical. I'm not talking just about a what if. This what if hypothetical situation is real. Christ is here. Christ is speaking. The question is, do you have spiritual sense to be able to hear and see the Lord Jesus Christ in our midst? That's very important. As we think about Christ and his relationship to the seven churches, it's interesting to think about. What would Christ do if he were church shopping? Here we are, you know, in the 21st century in America. We've got two churches here in the small town of Firth, both true churches, faithful to the Lord in many ways. We've got many churches surrounding us, so Country Bible, we've got churches in Princeton, we've got all kinds of churches in Lincoln. You drive down 84th Street, and it's church after church after church. If Christ was living here in our area and he was going from church to church, what do you think he would look for in a church? If he visited a church, would he see something and say, yeah, that's the church that I want to be at? Or would he see certain things that would be deal breakers? He'd be like, nope, I'm not going to that church. That's not the church that makes sense to me. So we have this practice of evaluating churches, but in Revelation 2 and 3, we have God's divine evaluation of seven first century churches that answer those questions for us. We don't have to wonder. We don't have to guess what is a deal breaker for Christ and what is something that would be a plus in his book because he makes it very clear. And the more things change, the more they stay the same. Those first century churches are very similar to the situation that we have. They had good churches. They had bad churches. 
They had churches that were full of love and they had churches that were rather loveless. They had churches that were standing on truth and fighting against false teachers and they had churches that were not. They had churches that were suffering for the Lord Jesus Christ and being faithful to him and they had churches that had compromised to the point where they could fit in with the world and get along with anybody. There were all kinds of churches back then, just like there's all kinds of churches now. And that's why Christ picks out these seven churches for us as examples so that we can hear what the Lord of the church, the exalted Christ, full of glory, speaks to us today. Let's dig into the text here. Start in Revelation chapter 2, verse 1. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, The words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance. And now you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. And repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place, unless you repent. Yet this you have, you hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. There's the first example of these seven letters. We won't be reading or digging into all of them this morning, but I wanted you to get the feel for what these letters sounded like when the church received them from the pen of John and from the mouth of Jesus Christ. Now, a question that we should consider is, why seven? There were more than seven churches in this area, and the seven churches that are listed here, Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea, were not even the largest cities in this area. A large city like Hierapolis doesn't get a letter, but a smaller city like Thyatira does receive a letter. Why these seven? Good question to ask. Why not eight? Why not five? Well, as you probably are well aware, seven is a special number in the Bible. And God selected seven because throughout the book of Revelation, seven is going to factor in 54 times. It starts here with the seven churches, but it doesn't end with that. The number seven continues to be of great significance throughout the rest of the book. So the number seven has symbolic significance. That's why he chose seven and not eight or six. And he chose seven because seven is the number of divine perfection. And the church is supposed to represent in the world God's divine perfections. And so the sevenfold church is kind of like the menorah. Here I put it on the slide for you. These seven churches of Asia are kind of like the seven lamps on this golden lampstand. Now, the metaphor is a little bit different from what we have in Revelation 1, 2, and 3 because there's actually seven different lampstands that are distinct, whereas the menorah is just one lampstand with seven different lamps upon it. Still, I think the symbolism of seven ties in with the seven churches that are here, even though they are distinct lampstands. And as you look at the map that I've thrown up here for us, you received the postcard of the book of Revelation from the Apostle John, and then it starts off with Ephesus. Ephesus here is a port city on the coast of Asia Minor, and then it's going to follow the circuit around to Smyrna, to Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea, which was actually a postal route. 
So the post office would start here in Ephesus and they'd carry the mail to all these different cities and that's where the letter of the book of Revelation, the prophecy of Revelation was then carried, starting with Ephesus, ending there with Laodicea in a circular route. So that tells us part of why these seven churches were selected. Now, as we look at the seven churches, it's important for us to keep in mind that these seven churches are quite important in the early history of the church. This area of Asia Minor had extended ministry from not one, but two premier apostles in the New Testament. The Apostle Paul was the first to minister in many of these cities, Ephesus, and had an extended stay of ministry, writing the letter to the Ephesians. Also writing a letter to the Colossians, which is not far away from these cities as well. And then after Paul had ministered for a number of years among these churches, John moved to this area after the invasion of Israel during his day. There was war in Israel in the first century, just like there is in the 21st century. And the church abandoned Jerusalem because of Jesus' prophecy that it was going to be destroyed and trampled on by the nations. And so at Jesus' warning, John left to minister to the churches in Asia Minor. And at the time these letters are written from Christ to these seven churches, John has been ministering in this area for about 30 years. So they've got the ministry of Paul, they've got the ministry of John, And they have a number of the letters of the New Testament already have been written to these churches. Ephesians, Colossians, 1st and 2nd Timothy among Paul's letters. All of John's letters, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, and the book of Revelation, were also written to this area, churches that were in this area. Now most of what we know about the seven churches comes from the book of Acts and from the letters of the New Testament. We know that the church at Colossae, which is nearby to these, had an early struggle with heresy that Paul had to write against in his letter to the Colossians. We know that there were not many from Asia who stood with Paul during his imprisonment, but that he was abandoned by many of those who had been traveling with him or were associated with his ministry. At the end of his life, he writes that those in Asia did not stand with him in 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 15. We know that Ephesus, as it receives a great commendation here for standing against false teaching, earlier had difficulties in that area because Timothy had been sent to Ephesus in order to deal with false teachers in the city of Ephesus that we read about in 1 Timothy. Ephesus was probably a big church by this time. It's decades old. 1 Peter also was written to the churches of Asia Minor. And so that is a key letter for understanding the culture and the challenges and the difficulties that these churches were facing a generation earlier when Peter was ministering in this area as well. So a lot of letters, a lot of apostolic ministry, and yet a lot of problems. We don't want to romanticize the first century church, the apostolic church, that it was full of false teaching, it was full of Christians who were not living according to Christ, and they needed constant encouragement, they needed constant rebuke, there were divisions that had to be brought back together. And so don't think that the first century church was this golden age and that we've fallen off since then. There's always been problems in the church. There always will be problems in the church. And that doesn't cause us to love her any less, but it causes us to work all the harder in order to bring the church to the maturity and the glory that God has destined us to obtain and that we will obtain when Christ comes back. But in the meantime, we are the church militant and we will continue to strive against sin. 
Now, the metaphor that is used here for the church is the seven lampstands. You see them referenced again at the end of verse 1, that Jesus Christ is identified as the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands. And that's still true today. We are still a lampstand, and Christ is still walking among the lampstands. Even churches like Laodicea, where he has nothing good to say about the church, he still loves them, he still rebukes them, he still walks among them. And so that's important for us to recognize that there are churches around us that there is very little good going on in those churches. And yet, Christ still loves them. Christ still wants to see them repent and change and grow. And so that needs to be our desire. We need to have that same Christ-like ministry to other congregations, to not just write them off and say, oh, we're done with you but instead to plead, to exhort, to set an example, to be humble and ministering and saying, hey, we have our problems and we're trying to learn and grow and we want to help you to learn and grow and be a servant to the church. Whether it's a strong or a weak church, Christ cares and he loves and we want to imitate that. Even though the church of the first century was imperfect, even though it had so many problems and struggles, it is still a golden lampstand. And we need to see the church of Jesus Christ as a golden lampstand. I want you to turn with me from Revelation chapter 2 back to 2 Corinthians chapter 3. There's some key verses here in 2 Corinthians 3. Many places I could go to make the same point in the New Testament. But I come here because it's been a while since we've been here. And it does such a good job of making my point. The church of Jesus Christ is a glorious thing. The church of Jesus Christ as we are and as other churches are, despite our flaws, is the best thing going in the world. If it wasn't for the saints, if it wasn't for God's people who believe God's word, I wouldn't want to live in this world. I would want to be gone. But because there is such a thing as salvation, because there is such a thing as forgiveness, because there is a people who knows grace and who gives grace, well, that gives me joy in this world, as the psalmist said. As for the saints who are in the earth, they are all my delight. So let's read about that here, to have Christ's love for the church as well. In 2 Corinthians chapter 3, starting in verse 5. 2 Corinthians 3, verse 5. Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything is coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God. So important to keep that in mind. We are just a lampstand. And the lampstand is nothing without the light. It's purposeless without the light. A lampstand in a dark room with no light is a useless object. But when the light is on the lampstand, then it serves its purpose. And that's the way we are as God's people. That's the way we are as God's church. If Christ is not here, if Christ is not shining in us, then we have no purpose. A lampstand with no light. Useless. And so we are this lampstand. We have no sufficiency coming from ourselves. Our sufficiency is from Christ. He's the light and we're the lamp. And notice verse 6. He has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. Now, if the ministry of death carved in letters on stone came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory, which was being brought to an end, will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? For if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation... The ministry of righteousness must far exceed it in glory. Indeed, in this case, what once had glory has come to have no glory at all because of the glory that surpasses it. For if what is being brought to an end came with glory, much more 
will what is permanent have glory. You see that? Do you have spiritual eyes to see the glory of Christ in the church, the ministry of the new covenant that we have been given? I hope so. I hope you love the church. I hope you see the glory of the church, that you're not just distracted by the imperfections of the church and say, oh, they're so bad. I just hate the church. I wish they could be different. Well, yeah, we do wish that they could be more than what they are, but don't lose the fact of what they are. Don't just see the fault, see the glory. Very important for us to keep that in mind. Think about this. We dwell on the earth, and we look up at the sky, and we see these little points of light up there at night, the stars and the greater glory of the moon. And I think, in some respect, it's kind of reversed for God. God looks down from the sky on the earth, and it's all darkness, spiritually. The hearts of people, the hearts of family, the hearts of religious places of worship around the world, it's all darkness. And yet, throughout the world, he has scattered little points of light, The righteous, the Bible says, will shine like stars in the sky forever. And so as heaven looks down, the earth is like a dark sky, but there's little points of light scattered around, and and you're one of those little points of light. Your family, your household, your faith. And God wants to look down in your household when you wake up in the morning and, and hear your song rising early to him, holy, holy, holy. And that brings him joy because most households don't have that. There's just spiritual darkness and idolatry. But you are a different people. You're a light in a dark place and Christ looks down. He sees those little points of light and then when we come together, all those little points of light come together, it's like a shining light, a lamp, like the light of the moon, a greater glory when we're all gathered together. That's why I love the church so much. That's why I love fellowshipping with you and being with you is because the glory of Christ is in you. The light of Christ is in you. and We all gather together and Christ sees it and he loves it and it's shining to the world around as a beacon of hope. Continue reading there in 2 Corinthians chapter 3. Since we have such a hope, we are very bold. Not like Moses, who would put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end, but their minds were hardened. For to this day, when they read the Old Covenant, that same veil remains unlifted because only through Christ is it taken away. That's very relevant to what we just talked about Israel, right? Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. That's written by a Jewish believer. Okay? Now, the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, just like in Revelation 1, when John beheld the glory of the Lord, we are being transformed into the same image, from one degree of glory to another, for this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. And if I can see the grace of Christ, if I can see the wisdom of Christ, if I can see the righteousness of Christ, if I can see the service of Christ, if I can see all of that in you, then that encourages me. And I can be more like Jesus Christ in those ways. And so we're all ministering to one another, becoming more and more glorious as we see Christ, reflect Christ, and become like Christ. I also want to read the first few verses of chapter 4 because it's all so good. So it says there, Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. It's easy to lose heart. But when you remember the glory of the church and what Christ is doing, and you see it, then you don't lose heart. And we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways, which Christ would rebuke if he was writing a letter to the churches. 
We've renounced that and we refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. But by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. See that? The light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. That's what we are. The lampstand, putting out the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. Notice this last one. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, there's the lampstand, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Man, that gets me going. That's pretty awesome. So, the seven churches are seven lampstands, and they are glorious, they are golden, they have a purpose, but we don't always accomplish that purpose. We're not always acting the way that we are supposed to. And so we sing the prayer of hymn number 414, which we sang not too long ago. Oh, make your church, dear Savior, a lamp of burnished gold to bear before the nations your true light as of old. A wonderful hymn there describing what we're talking about in Revelation 2 and 3 and its connection there with 2 Corinthians 3 and 4. All right, so having considered the lampstands, let's consider then the message of Christ the Lord's message to the churches. As an overview, we're going to look at Christ's messages to the churches according to the content. There's basically five things that God puts into every one of these letters. Each one follows a similar pattern, and that pattern reveals to us a lot. That's why we're not just digging into the first one this morning, but instead we're looking at the whole thing. Because as you look at the pattern of the Lord Jesus Christ in speaking to his churches, you notice some things that are very important that will then set us up for the details as we dig in in the following weeks. Now, the first thing that we notice in verse 1 is the commission to write. And that is where Christ tells John who to write to. To the angel of the church in Ephesus, write. That's the commission. There's something important about this. He repeats it in every one, to the angel of the church in Smyrna, the angel of the church in Pergamum, the angel of the church in Thyatira, and so on. He says seven times this message. What it teaches us, what it indicates to us, is that the individual church is autonomous and is responsible for its spiritual state. Okay? Christ did not write a letter to the denominational leadership because there was no denominational leadership in the apostolic church. Christ appointed independent local churches led by the congregation, the elders who were representatives of that congregation shepherding the individual flock. And so the angel of the church, you remember we talked about this two weeks ago, that this is a reference most likely to the human messengers who had gone to visit John on the island of Patmos to encourage him, from these churches, and then who carried the letters back, well, the letter, multiple copies of the letter, to the seven churches. And so the messenger is the angel who is carrying the letter to each one of these churches and who will deliver it. So to the angel of the church in Ephesus, write. Now, another important thing to note, besides the fact of the autonomy and the responsibility of the local church for its own spiritual condition, 
is what about Christians who don't go to church? That's sometimes people wonder, you know, there's a lot of people who claim to be Christians, and yet church membership is nowhere near the number of people who claim to be Christians. Well, if you claim to be a Christian in this context, but you don't go to church, well, then you don't get a letter from the Lord. He sends it to the church. He doesn't send it to every individual Christian. He sends it to the church. This is important. I like what one commentator said about this. Listen carefully. It is doubtless true that Christ is not willing to walk with anybody who does not care to walk with his people. There's no Lone Ranger Christianity. That if you're not a part of the church, if you don't love the church, if you don't serve the church, then you don't love Christ. You don't serve Christ, and you're not walking with Christ. It's that simple. No exceptions. Christ writes to the church. The church is the lampstand. And notice this. Christ writes to the church in Ephesus, He doesn't say to the many different churches in Ephesus. Now, Ephesus was a pretty large city, about the size of Lincoln. There weren't multiple churches in Ephesus. There was one church. Christ never intended for us to have separate multiple churches. He always intended for there to be one church and for it to be united. And it is our responsibility, my responsibility as an elder, the other elders' responsibilities, to seek that unity. If Christ were to send a letter to the church in Firth today, which church would he send it to? This one or the one on the other side of town? Do you think that's how Christ intends the church to be? No. He intends there to be one church that is united. And the fact that we are not united and that it doesn't seem to bother us is probably one of the things that he would say if he was writing a letter to the churches today. Say, why are you guys separate? Why are you not meeting together? I am your unity. I am your Lord. I'm not divided. Why are you divided? It's a good question. Now, there have to be certain divisions among people. The Bible says there are certain divisions that we are commanded to make. But if we are not commanded to divide from someone because they are a heretic, then we are commanded to pursue unity with that person as a brother. And we can't just say, well, it's the way it is, it's the way it was the way it's always going to be? No. It doesn't matter how many denominations have arisen and how long there's been so many different churches. What matters is what is God's will and what are we doing to pursue God's will? I'm not saying it's easy, but I'm saying it's important. Something we need to be thinking about. Something we need to be praying about. He writes to the church in Ephesus, the church in Smyrna, the church in Pergamum, not multiple churches. How do we miss it? Secondly, as we look at the Lord's message to the churches, we see the correspondent. I've taken this from another commentator who put them all with letter C, so you can help remember them. So the commission is to write to the churches. The correspondent is Christ. And as each letter is introduced, not only does each letter have the addressee, the angel of the church in Ephesus, and so on. But it also has the addressor, the one who is addressing the church, and each one gives a different introduction of the same Lord. Notice what we read in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1. The words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. Each one of these introductions focus on Christ, but in a way that is particularly meaningful to the church that he is addressing. 
So he introduces himself in seven different ways, and each one is tailored to that particular congregation. What the church at Ephesus needs to know, and what comes first, is that he walks among the seven golden lampstands. But look at the introduction to the church in Smyrna. The words of the first and the last, who died and came to life. Now you're probably starting to notice that each one of these introductions draws from the description of Jesus Christ, his titles and his glory, at the end of chapter 1, which we were studying two weeks ago. In the vision of Christ's glory and his splendor, we saw that he is the one who was dead and who came to life. That was how he identified himself in speaking to John in chapter 1, verse 18. And so that's what he says to the church in Smyrna. This is what they need to remember about the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, we all need to remember all of it, but certain of us need to remember certain parts of it more particularly. All right? So, our correspondent. And as I thought about our correspondent, our Lord Jesus Christ, I couldn't help but once again reference Mark chapter 9, verse 7. We've had this verse up here for three weeks now, I think, in my last three sermons, where on the, the Mount of Transfiguration, the voice came to the disciples, this is my beloved son, listen to him. And I think that's the spirit, the same spirit that we have at the beginning of each of these seven letters. This, the one who wonks among the seven golden lampstands, the one who died and came to life, this is God's beloved son, we need to listen to him. We need to listen to him. Now, the attributes and the titles of Jesus Christ that are throughout these letters form then a recapitulation, a re-emphasis upon all of the glory of Christ that was emphasized already in chapter 1. This highlights for us how important it is that we never lose sight of the Lord Jesus Christ. If we see anything when we come to church, as we see Christ, we behold his glory. Not with the physical eyes, but with the eyes of the heart, the eyes of faith. To see the Lord Jesus Christ, that is our life. Knowing him, seeing him, beholding him, this is the salvation of God. And so we must carefully guard our hearts and our minds and our thoughts about the Lord Jesus Christ. What comes into your mind when you think about God and Christ is the most important thing about you, as Tozer wrote. Now the third thing in these letters, after the commission, after the correspondent, is then the commendation. Christ finds in almost every one of these churches except for Laodicea, he finds something to commend, something to praise them for. Sardis kind of gets a little bit of a commendation. There's just a few people in Sardis who are walking with Christ. So really Laodicea and Sardis are the worst. But the other five churches, he begins with a word of praise. And in six out of the seven letters, he says, I know your deeds. He repeats it. Six out of the seven letters. I know your deeds. Notice that Christ knows not your profession of faith, not your public image that you put out, but Christ knows your deeds. The Bible constantly emphasizes that God judges according to deeds. Make the tree bad if the fruit's bad. Fruit's good, good fruit. The fruit is the deeds, not the words. Now, what you say about yourself, it's what you do that proves your faith. Over and over again, the Bible makes this emphasis, and Jesus makes that emphasis over and over again, that he knows about the churches. 
He knows their deeds. He knows their trouble. He knows their faithfulness. He knows everything. He knows the good, the bad, and the ugly about each one of these churches. And he finds something to commend in almost every church, which is amazing. There's no way to deceive him. There's no way to surprise him. He sees. He's got eyes like a flame of fire. But not only does Christ find something to praise, but he also finds something to blame in each one of the churches. He has a word of correction for each of these churches, except for one or two. But most of them he has a word of correction. The suffering churches don't hear any rebuke from Christ because they've already got enough uh, to deal with, with their persecution and their suffering. But the other churches, they all get a word of correction. And so notice that Christ commends before he corrects. This is a good pattern for us as parents. Before you correct your child, make sure that you are finding things that are commendable in them as well. As someone who's always finding fault is called a fault finder. You don't want to be a fault finder. doesn't mean you never find fault. doesn't mean you never correct. just means that's not the only thing you do. If your child thinks that the only time you speak to them is in order to correct them and rebuke them and tell them what they're doing wrong, they're going to stop listening to you. They're going to say, oh, here we go again. What did I do wrong now? You don't want that. And Christ doesn't want that. Christ sets a good example. He commends us as well as condemns. So there's that word of commendation before the word of correction. But Jesus is willing to correct. And he rebukes the churches. He's not just all positive and encouraging in his message. And here's an important point to keep in mind. It's very easy to get along with someone who is not present. And for a lot of people, they don't see Christ, they don't hear Christ, they've got an imaginary Christ that's in their mind, and they get along with that Christ just fine. He never says a crossword to them, he loves everything that they're doing, he affirms all of their choices. That Christ is very easy to get along with, but that's not the real Christ. The real Christ steps in and says, I've got something that I want to talk with you about that is not right, that needs to get fixed, and I'm here to talk with you about it because I love you. That's the real Christ. We want to be like that as a church and as his children, as his followers. There's a lot of repentance here in chapters 2 and 3. And even though they have all these problems and Christ has to correct them over and over again, he still sees them as golden lampstands. Very important. Let your children know that even though you correct them a lot, you still see them as wonderful and glorious. Number five is the call. And that's where at the end here, just keep on with the Ephesian example that we already read, in Revelation chapter 2, verse 7, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So here's the call to hear, and this is repeated in all seven of the letters. Almost exact same words in uh, every letter. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Now this has a lot of Old Testament background. He who has an ear goes back to Deuteronomy 29. It's in Isaiah chapter 6 and Isaiah 42. And Jesus talks this way in the Gospels in Matthew 11 and Matthew 13. So wonderful to do a study, take a picture. Uh, But we're going to skip all that for time's sake this morning. And as we look at the call of the Lord Jesus Christ, his call is singular. It brings it down to the individual level. And once again, you have to be a part of the congregation or you're not hearing anything from the Lord Jesus Christ. But as you are here and listening to the voice of God, speaking through the word of God, then you have this individual responsibility. Are you listening? Are you hearing what Christ says? Not what I'm saying. What Christ is saying. Can you hear the Spirit of God now, this morning, all the time? Do you have an ear to hear? Because he's speaking. He is here and he is not silent. 
Not to say that he doesn't speak through the preacher who's using God's word. He speaks through the Bible. But the voice of God is active. I have to share with you this wonderful passage from a book that I would commend to all of you, A.W. Tozer's Pursuit of God. In A.W. Tozer's Pursuit of God, a book that has had profound impact on me, he writes this, I believe that much of our religious unbelief is due to a wrong conception of and a wrong feeling for the scriptures of truth. And we have a wrong idea, a wrong feeling about the Bible, is what he says. A silent God suddenly began to speak in a book, and when the book was finished, lapsed back into silence again forever. Now we read the book as the record of what God said when he was, for a brief time, in a speaking mood. With notions like that in our heads, how can we believe? The facts are that God is not silent, has never been silent. It is the nature of God to speak. The second person of the Holy Trinity is called the Word of God. The Bible is the inevitable outcome of God's continuous speech. It is the infallible declaration of his mind for us put into our familiar human words. I think a new world will arise out of the religious mists when we approach our Bible with the idea that it is not only a book which was once spoken, but a book which is now speaking. The prophets habitually said, Thus saith the Lord, present tense. They meant their hearers to understand that God's speaking is continuous. We may use the past tense properly to indicate that at a certain time, a certain word of God was spoken, but a word of God once spoken continues to be spoken. Just as a child once born continues to be alive. Or a world once created continues to exist. And those are but imperfect illustrations. For children die and worlds burn out. But the word of our God endures forever. If you would follow on to know the Lord, come at once to the open Bible expecting it to speak to you. Do not come with the notion that it is a thing which you may push around at your convenience. It is more than a thing. It is a voice, a word, the very word of the living God. We need a right conception of the Bible. What is it that we are doing when we read it, when we have the voice of God speaking to us in the present tense? He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. For what Christ said to the church in Ephesus, what Christ said to the church in Laodicea, he continues to say to the church today, if you have an ear to hear his speaking voice. So, what does a healthy church look like to the Lord Jesus Christ? As we look at his commission, his correspondence, his commendation, his correction, his call to the churches, we come to the conclusion that what Christ is looking for in the church is very simply stated. He's looking for faith, he's looking for hope, and he's looking for love. You can look at every commendation and every condemnation in these letters, and every one has to do with faith, hope, or love, or all three. When Christ goes church shopping, what's he looking for? He's not concerned about the size of the congregation. He's not concerned about the beauty of the building. He's not concerned about the church's annual budget. He's not concerned about the eloquence of the preacher. He's not concerned about the skin color of the people who are sitting in the congregation. He's not concerned with what language they speak. He's concerned with faith, hope, and love, and that is it. And if we want to be pleasing to him, 
then we will do everything in our power to increase in those three cardinal Christian virtues. And that's what we're going to be studying in the next couple of months together. A church that is doctrinally pure, a church that is morally excellent, a church that is active in service to one another, a church that is unafraid of the persecution of the world, that is steadfast in hope, expecting his return. That's what Christ is looking for. That's what he loves. The more things change, the more they stay the same. Christ is here. He sees. He knows. Perfectly. He's speaking. Let's hear what he has to say.